Hello and welcome to the third installment of Frontline Defender's new podcast, Rights on the Line. My name is Hasina Manik and I will be hosting today's episode. Yesterday was Earth Day 2018. To mark that, we'll be discussing some of the risks faced by environmental rights defenders advocating against large-scale development projects. Over this past weekend, the International Monetary Fund and World Bank held their annual spring meeting. This overlap of events inspired us to take a look at the relationship between environmental rights and international banks. In today's episode, we will explore a few cases that demonstrate how big banks can both help or hinder international human rights standards through the projects they choose to invest in. To start, we'll hear from Guatemalan student activist Francisco Simón Francisco. Yo me llamo Francisco Simón Francisco. Hablo Canjobal y Chu. Y soy de la comunidad de Pohom, San Matistatán, que pertenece a la región de Ixquisís. My name is Francisco Simón Francisco. I'm currently studying sociology at San Carlos University in Guatemala. One of my main reasons for studying is to participate in social dynamics through research based on scientific methods, which promotes a more professional level of research and study. The situation currently experienced by the Ixquisís region began in 2009, when the community and municipal consultation on the San Mateo Extitan territory was held. 99% of the Chur, Canjobal, and mixed-race inhabitants totally rejected large-scale infrastructure projects, like hydroelectric projects, mining, and others. And one of the reasons why the Ixquisís region organized is that the municipal government at the time, the mayor, Andrés Ononzo, excluded Ixquisís inhabitants from decision-making when permits were granted for two hydroelectric projects and one that is pending approval. This is what led the inhabitants of the Ixquisís region to organize and fight against the hydroelectric projects. The municipal government under Andrés Alonso organized a municipal consultation on the territory of San Mateo Extitan in 2009. In 2011, the same mayor who organized this consultation granted the permit for two hydroelectric plants, one called San Mateo and the other called San Andrés. The purpose of these hydroelectric plants is to use the three major rivers in the Ixquisís region, Yalwitz River, Pohom River, and Negro River. They plan to build three hydroelectric projects with a total of 44 megawatts on these three rivers. One of the reasons why the inhabitants can continue to resist with their struggle and movement is that the company and the municipal mayor didn't take their decisions into account. It's true that there's a need for electricity, but that doesn't mean that the municipal mayor and the companies can take advantage of the community's needs and its situation. Also, the company hasn't explained the scope of the project to the community. They presented the idea of development to the community, but what kind of development are they talking about? It's not human development, but economic development that will directly benefit these companies. If they really want to talk about human development for the Ixquisís region, which includes eight villages, and for the three regions in the north of San Mateo Extitan that don't have hydroelectric plants, that's a total of 23 communities. If this company is really talking about human development, why are they creating these three hydroelectric projects? In conclusion, it's logical that the interests are economic business interests. And in exchange for what? For nothing. The only thing this company is creating are divisions in society, criminalization, persecution, cross-border immigration, and especially murders. The divisions aren't just in families, but in community institutions. There are divisions within education committees, health committees, land committees, and the churches. These hydroelectric projects in Guatemala are some of many megaprojects in the region that can negatively impact surrounding communities. Ed O'Donovan is head of protection at Frontline Defenders, and he spoke to Rights on the Line about the risks those communities can face if they push back against these projects, and the role investors can play in protecting human rights defenders. 
a lot of the time environmental rights defenders are working in contexts where there are um, battles being fought over access to natural resources um, and you'll often find that um, groups of defenders and especially indigenous peoples are being forced off their lands to to make way for companies to come in um, to to uh, capitalize on those lands and to implement mega projects um, often with the with the connivance of the state um, so there often tends to be collusion between state and non-state actors uh, directed against defenders who are highlighting the potential well highlighting a number of issues one that um, pe- peoples are being forced off their land without their uh, prior free and informed consent um, also once projects begin um, or when the evictions are taking place um, defenders who are highlighting human rights violations and in, in in that context are then targeted by uh, by as I said state and non-state actors so we've uh, we've seen throughout Latin America the criminalization of defenders who have been involved in in whistleblowing and in trying to publicize some of these violations um, and we've also seen um, murders um, and one of the I suppose not one of the causes, but one of the things we've seen over and over again is just the rate of impunity which follows um, when a human rights defender is killed. Um, according to the information we have, the rates of impunity of um, in cases where defenders have been killed is up around the high 80s, low 90%. Um, and this really leads to an atmosphere where it is generally seen that if you take out this human rights defender, you won't be pursued, and um, justice won't, call, won't come calling. And when you're working in an environment like that, it's it's extremely difficult, obviously, to continue doing that work, knowing full well that even if the worst happens to you, even if you're killed, it's very unlikely that the perpetrator will be brought to justice. An emerging question related to the projects Ed is talking about and that Francisco described earlier is the responsibility funders have when human rights violations occur as a result of these projects be that because an aspect of the project itself, like its construction or environmental impact, violates the human rights of nearby communities, but also because environmental rights defenders face serious additional consequences specifically as a result of their work. We know from our work at at Frontline Defenders that defending and protecting the environment is one of the riskiest types of human rights work you can be doing. Um, Every year we we record um, the number of human rights defenders who are killed and every year the vast majority of defenders are those working on the environment. Um, in addition to that, there are stigmatization campaigns which are, which are used against people who are objecting to the negative impacts of these mega projects. Um, and these campaigns are an attempt to isolate the defenders from their local communities, to um, defame them in the eyes of the public and to rob them of support. And it has a huge impact in terms of the psychological warfare, I suppose, that, that's, that's carried out against them. Um, and it's a very difficult thing to, to fight against a stigmatisation campaign. Um, and banks and any other actors who are coming in need to be aware of these types of threats that defenders are facing before they um, even consider investing. In June of this year, the trial will begin for the murder of Berta Caceres. Known for her environmental rights work and defense of indigenous land rights in Honduras, Berta Caceres was murdered in March of 2016 while advocating against the construction of the Aguazarca hydroelectric dam. More than a year after her death, Dutch development bank FMO and Finnish finance company FinFund both withdrew funding from the project as a result of international pressure. 
The tragic murder of Berta Caceres is one of many examples of when the leverage of international funding can be used to push governments to do more to protect human rights defenders. Since then, FMO has released a policy statement with a commitment to better protecting human rights defenders. Ed, what do you think about this step from FMO? So they're one of the first banks, to my knowledge, who are really trying to um, lead the way in this regard in terms of trying to actively address the issue of defenders and really appreciate the, the role that defenders um, are playing in, in their countries, despite the fact that they are sometimes working against the implementation of projects that the bank would be funding. There's also some way to go, I think, in terms of really appreciating why the work that defenders are doing is important and how they should be best protecting them. But having said that, I mean, it definitely is uh, a positive development that they are taking up this issue of defenders since, since Bertha's death. In that way, I think development banks more generally need to be doing a lot more um, with regard to defenders. There really needs to be a lot more appreciation of the fact that defenders need to be consulted at the very earliest stages when banks are thinking about investing in, in projects. Um, the local partners who the banks are, are often going into business with, well, they may have said they've done their due diligence. Um, it's very rare that they would have had any kind of proper consultation with, with defenders. So banks need to be very much aware that when they're going into entering into these partnerships, that they can't just do it on the word of their local partners. They need to have people um, on the ground to consult with local civil society, to hear about what issues there are, to hear about what potential impacts um, the project may have on, on the lives of the local communities, and to hear about any threats that may have already been issued against defenders. At what point in the investment process should banks and corporations begin to consult with human rights defenders on a potential project? The earliest consultation um, as possible is, is absolutely vital because Otherwise, they may be six months, one year down the line into a project when they start seeing these problems arise. And often in those cases, it's, it's too late. Then the damage has already been done to the defenders um, or they'll have become involved in, in this local struggle that they don't really understand. Whereas if they had gone and consulted in the first place with defenders, um, they may have decided against investing in the first place. There are a number of human rights organizations uh, and organisations working on, on corporate accountability who would be more than willing to, to provide advice and to um, try and guide them towards the, the steps they should be taking in terms of better supporting and protecting defenders against these types of risks that they face. And I think in, in the run-up to the trial, I think, again, there's a role for, for business and, and development banks, banks to play to express their hope for, for a fair and transparent trial because it's important for any investors that um, anywhere they invest in is governed by rule of law and there's transparency and there's predictability of the law which make for for a good uh, investment environment and which is the exact same type of environment that human rights defenders are also seeking. As part of Frontline Defenders' recent mission, HRD Visibility Coordinator Maria San Martin visited Bolivia where there are also several concerning trends of repression of environmental rights, land rights, and indigenous rights relating to mega-projects. Maria spoke with Rights on the Line about what she learned in Bolivia. The situation of indigenous land and environmental rights defenders is of great concern in Bolivia. In a recent visit, defenders across the country shared testimonies with us that demonstrates a coordinated strategy by the government and its support groups 
to silence critical voices. Indigenous defenders who fight to remain on their land and protect the environment from mega projects, and those who support them are subjected to legal harassment, administrative sanctions, smear campaigns, threats, physical attacks, arbitrary detention, and criminalization. In a country whose constitution actually recognizes the right to autonomy, self-government, and indigenous territorial entities, including the right to prior free and informed consent, legal defense is an essential strategy to enforce the rights of indigenous people. But there are few lawyers who dare to defend indigenous rights before the courts because of the level of risk and harassment that this entails. It is necessary to ensure more attention and accountability at an international level, as well as supporting defenders in accessing both Bolivian and international courts to protect these rights. At Frontline Defenders, we plan to continue supporting human rights defenders in Bolivia, including promoting their legitimacy and recognition through visibility within Bolivia and on an international level as a means of protection. One of the defenders Maria met with is human rights lawyer Nelson Limadrid. Nelson is legally representing two indigenous communities who reside in Bolivia's Santa Cruz province to challenge the construction of the Rositas hydroelectric project. Ahead of the trial in April, Nelson spoke to Rights on the Line about the case and the risks he's facing as legal representation for these communities. I'm a lawyer. I've been working since 2014 with indigenous peoples, specifically with the Guarani Nation. In 2016, the Bolivian state power company Impresa Nacional de Electricidad Bolivia, also known as ENDE, signed a contract with two Chinese companies, China Three Gorges Corp and China International Water and Electric, to build the Rositas Hydroelectric Dam on the Grande River in Santa Cruz. China Three Gorges Corp built the Three Gorges Dam, the world's largest hydroelectric project, which displaced over 1.2 million people and flooded 13 cities, 14 towns, and approximately 1,500 villages in China's Hubei province. The Rositas project would flood over 45,000 hectares of land. Nelson is the legal representative for two Guarani communities called Yumao and Tatarena Nuevo, who between them have 11,000 hectares of land that would be flooded with the construction of the Rositas Dam. The government has never consulted with them or talked to them about the possibility of moving them somewhere else or compensation. Like Convention 169 requires, they have an identity, a culture, a language, and they existed before the conquest. It just hired the company to execute the project. Convention 169, the International Labour Organization Convention on Indigenous and Tribal Peoples, which mandates that, quote, the people's concern shall be consulted whenever consideration is being given to their capacity to alienate their lands or otherwise transmit their rights outside their own community, end quote. Yeah. Since then, we've been sending letters to the government and ENDE, the state electricity company, asking them to explain the process. They've never given accurate information to us. Now they're obtaining authorization from nearby communities that won't be flooded. They'll probably try to use that to say the communities accept the project, but that's not true. They've never gone to these two indigenous communities, Yumao or Tatarenda Nuevo, or given them information. That's why last October, in 2017, we filed a constitutionality claim against the decree issued by the government to authorise the company to execute this project. The Constitutional Court of Bolivia rejected our claim. We also filed a popular legal claim, which seeks to defend the rights of indigenous peoples. Two judges have so far rejected the popular action on the basis of jurisdiction. According to Nelson, when Cochabamba judge Oscar Ortiz recused himself from making a judgment on the case in March, he had been subject to intimidation from the state attorney's office. 
He initially ordered that the company not take any administrative or legal action, but reversed that ruling a few days later, saying he lacked jurisdiction. I think there was pressure. We can't claim to have documents or evidence because that wouldn't hold true. Uh, but I think the pressure came from the government, and especially from the state attorney's office. It's like the judge threw out everything he had done a few days before. We don't know why he allowed our claim to proceed that day if he thought he lacked jurisdiction. No one wants to take a risk and resolve a situation involving indigenous peoples and the state. I don't think any judges will take the case. That's what we think. But we'll wait to see what they decide. Another disconcerting dimension are the limitations of the legal system in protecting indigenous rights in Bolivia, even though these rights are included in Bolivia's constitution. We are very aware of how the justice system works in Bolivia. Nonetheless, we have to follow the regular procedures and exhaust domestic routes. That means filing any claims allowed by law in Bolivia, so we can go to the International Court and file a claim before the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. We've exhausted the unconstitutionality action route, although it doesn't defend rights, but rather the Constitution. We've attempted that claim. We've tried to receive information about the issue through administrative claims, but there has been no response. We even have letters where they've lied to us. For example, a letter in October 2016 said the project was under study and nothing was happening, and that it was just an idea, less than nothing. A few days later in Santa Cruz, the contract was signed. The other route is the defense of rights. The popular legal claim is the only option for defending the rights of indigenous peoples. That claim is ongoing. We're waiting for the judge to allow the claim to proceed, and we'll wait for the results. As a result of taking on this case against the Rositas project, Nelson has received death threats and been harassed by the police. The most worrying part is when I travel. I travel by bus a lot in my work and with indigenous people. We don't have funds. On one of my trips I got a message saying that the bus I was going to take was going to have an accident. These things put you on edge, but we're still in the struggle. I think that since we filed the claim and are talking to the press, I hope they won't increase, but I think they will. Here he is telling us about one particular incident. I was followed by the police and they stopped us at an improvised checkpoint. Three trucks stopped us and made us get out. I trusted the police back then. They asked me where I was going, what my job was. They made us get out without our bags or anything. When I got on the bus, it left and I realised that they had stolen my hard drives and my computer. That was one incident and the persecution continued. Later the police went to a hotel where I was staying, supposedly to check migration matters. The owner of the hotel refused and called the nearby Guarani leaders. So that was blocked, you could say. Recently, with the legal claim, we've been getting phone threats, phone recordings. They're not normal voices, but distorted voices. Messages from Facebook accounts that then disappear. They're deleted, telling me to get off the case and watch my back. Along with the individually targeted death threats, harassment and intimidation, the entire case is being publicly smeared by the Bolivian government. Recently, the Minister of Fossil Fuels said that the people who filed the claim were people who were bad for the project. And since the project creates electricity and will supposedly bring drinking water to Santa Cruz, the biggest city in Bolivia with three million inhabitants, the minister, instead of saying that they'll answer the claim, see what's happening, or negotiate with us, pitted the entire city of Santa Cruz against us. He said Santa Cruz should defend this project, should defend its drinking water, and should defend its electricity. He called on young people and said that young people should all go out and defend the dreams of their grandparents, their parents, and their own dreams. These are official voices, unfortunately, and it makes us worry about what could happen going forward. Uh, but that's the government's official response. I think confrontation is what it wants. It doesn't want to solve issues but to pit us against other people, against people in Santa Cruz. The Santa Cruz Civic Committee said it would defend the Rositas project, that they support it, and that as Santa Cruz residents they wouldn't let it be stopped. So we're not just up against the state, now we're up against society. It must not be everyone I guess, 
But the government has already turned many people against us. It's important to remember that the legal action that Nelson and the Guarani communities he is representing are seeking is protected in international law as well as the Bolivian Constitution. Their rights to their land, their right to prior consultation, as well as compensation by the government. But the protection of these rights is not being put into practice. The only thing the government says now is that it's providing information on the issue. But it doesn't need to give information. Because what is needed is the consent of indigenous peoples. Not information, but prior consultation, as established by Convention 169 and the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. That's what needs to be applied. Alongside these concerning trends, there are some victories in the region. Earlier this month, Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos signed a decree guaranteeing indigenous communities autonomy in governing their own territories, along with announcing that 8 million hectares of land will be added to the country's protected areas. Last month, 24 countries signed a United Nations regional treaty protecting environmental rights defenders. The Regional Agreement on Access to Information, Public Participation, and Access to Justice in Environmental Matters in Latin America and the Caribbean Treaty, also called the Escasu Agreement, was approved in Costa Rica on the 4th of March. The Escasu Agreement includes an entire section on environmental rights defenders. Article 9, titled Human Rights Defenders in Environmental Matters, specifies that, quote, each party shall guarantee a safe and enabling environment for persons, groups, and organizations that promote and defend human rights in environmental matters, so that they are able to act free from threat, restriction, and insecurity, end quote. Bolivia, Honduras, and Guatemala are all amongst the countries that have signed on to the treaty. Frontline Defenders was founded in Dublin in 2001 to provide resources for the security and protection of human rights defenders at risk around the world. Rights on the Line is a new podcast initiative produced in-house by Frontline Defenders to present the work, the struggles and the perspectives of HRDs at risk. Special thanks for this episode go to HRDs Francisco Simon Francisco and Nelson Le Madrid, as well as Frontline Defenders Head of Protection Ed O'Donovan, and HRD Visibility Coordinator Maria San Martin. Thanks also to Frontline Defenders Research and Training Fellow for the Americas, Daniela Reveron Fuenmayo, as well as Paul Finnegan and Adam Shapiro for lending their voices to the translations. Music in this episode is from Let's Start at the Beginning by Lee Rosevere.